0: Welcome everyone. Thank you for coming back after lunch. I know there might have been temptation to slip over the skywalk and go shopping, but we're glad you're here. We'll make it worth your while. Thanks. So, at the convention last November, we started this conversation around how do we sustain customer experience in a world that's changing so rapidly. And following on from that, we wanted to have a panel discussion specifically around managing closed books. These are products that are no longer actively sold but are still hugely valuable. And um, we are very lucky to have with us a panel today representing four of the biggest insurers. We've got Peter Pinar from MMI, Mark Barberini from Liberty, Adrian Berg from All Mutual, and Henny van from from Sunlum. They, um, they're gonna introduce themselves shortly, but we wanna thank Nikki for pulling together such a good representation across the industry. So how this will work is I'll ask some questions of them, and then I'll ask some questions of you, and then you can ask questions of them. So we'll keep it interactive and light, okay? And uh, so you don't fall asleep digesting lunch. Okay. So let's meet our panel. Do you want to tell us a bit about how you came to manage Closebox?
1: Uh, from our side sorry. This on. Uh, from our side, uh my f- first job that I sort of had was uh, doing consulting work with a lot of sub- southern African clients and worked on a wide range of sort of you know universal uh, reversion bonus products, peer savings, mm-hmm. risk, etc. So there sort of almost was the the grounding level already of of sort of getting into the closed book. I then from there went on to to Liberty to actually help them with one of their migrations. Again, sort of, you know, perfectly being set up to work in the closed book environment, especially at uh, MMI level. I then went overseas for a while and sort of helped in the UK with platform business before coming back and joining MMI. And then with, in terms of the experience, actually then ending up with uh, the closed book and... Um, yeah, just being the perfect fit there.
2: Yeah, so my involvement in Closed Book was actually uh, more an accident than by design. Um, it started off just uh, being invited to join an operational area and just wandering around and just understanding the things that make it quite hard to run an operation and do a lot of the things you want to do. Um, so, in my current role, I actually manage uh, the retail operations uh, for, for Liberty. And what we realize is that um, there's a lot of value in closed books, but they sometimes do prevent you from doing things the way you want them to do. So for us, it's actually become uh, more, more about managing your customers better. Uh, but as I say, my involvement was actually quite by accident. It actually started off more as you know just trying to find efficiencies in the business.
3: Hi. I've, I've spent the last 32 years in the insurance industry in various roles, but I specifically joined Mutual uh, to close down their key retail book of business that had been running for 15 odd years. And that was at the stage when uh, your industry was moving from universal life to separation of savings and, savings and risk. So it was, unlike Mark, it was a very specific role and move into, into the management. And I've spent the last uh, 15 years or now managing both open and closed books of business. And uh, I think it's a very misunderstood space. I think it's an area that people don't really pay enough attention to. And the very name, closed, tends to turn a lot of people off. In the UK, they use heritage or legacy or closed. None of them are those appealing. So a lot of younger actuaries (laughs) tend to avoid it. They think product development or asset management or anything else. But if you're looking for a space that gives you scope, opportunity, complexity, opportunity to, to be innovative within parameters, to learn about what really works in products, it's it's the place to be.
4: Um, I've been a evaluation actuary for uh, a long, long time. I don't think I can remember that long. Um, actually I started working before some of my colleagues were born, uh, <laughs> which is um, worrying. Um, So I'm actually one of the few people that still remember what a reversionary bonus policy looked like Um, and I actually started working before Universal Life started. So somehow being in valuations, looking at closed books, that seems to be the natural place for me to be. Maybe I'll see it closing down before I retire.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Thanks. So a wealth of experience representing uh, different functional areas as well from valuations to product maintenance and operations. Are you happy that our panel have earned the right to address you today? Yeah? <laughs> okay, good. So, would you summarise, briefly summarize your company's approach to managing closed books?
1: Um, if, if I can start, I think from, from our level, there's the different levels that we uh, sort of look at and focus on. And if we sort of start at the, say, client level, you know, one of the, the issues there is in terms of the, the old product, the, the nature of those products. Clients' expectations of what those products should do, especially in terms of, for instance, a universal life, you know, the, the expectation might be there's more investment than a risk anymore, etc. So, um, so that is sort of a bit of the, the issue that you experience, and then you need to find then ways of, of sort of solving that. In our case, and I think a lot of uh, the other guys as well, you then find uh, conversion bases where you can go from, a, say, universal life to a, a new generation investment product. At a, a company level and managing the book level in terms of, of issues, is that, you know, it's, it's, as we sort of spoke about, um, you know, it's the, the IP of managing that book, you know, looking at reversion bonuses and how you sort of need to manage that, and all this uh, breadth of different products that were sort of sold in history and sort of might, might be closed now. You actually need that IP of, of sort of managing that successfully. It's also in terms of uh, closed books, it is usually go hand in hand with sort of systems and whether the systems are out of date or sort of old or whether the products are just so different that any changes that you need to bring in there are sort of always complex and sort of difficult. Then on the other level, we also uh, look at shareholder impact on this. And with a closed book obviously running off over time, you need to manage that book, especially sort of giving the, the the fixed level expenses that you have on those. And in terms of then, that's where the the, uh, the, the topic of migration and specifically system migrations uh, comes into play a lot as uh, well, at least on our level, or our area.
2: Yeah, I think <coughs> ours is quite similar. I mean, we we do system migrations, and yeah, for obvious reasons, you know, technology improves over time, and you know you can get rid of some of the, the constraints that you have have been old technology. Um, we also look at it at a product level, which is quite similar to to, to MMI. Um, I think one thing is is that um, the timing of when we're actually doing it is a little bit different um, because you know we've had uh, sort of acquisitions um, happen in our history, but we haven't necessarily always done um, sort of the, the the simplification at that time. So we kind of like doing it now, and we see that you know maybe it's something we should have done before. And I think the other thing is we see it as part of a larger strategy. So although we do have, you know, there's a lot of focus on on legacy, uh, it's actually part of a, of a larger strategy, which is actually all about driving customer experience um, and and recognising that your closed book clients are also customers um, who might want an experience.
3: So. Yeah. Similarly, we've we've built uh, some expertise around managing closed products. I think I think there are some elements that are different to managing open books and so it's worth building the expertise across products. I think key is that there's no one recipe or there's no silver bullet. And it's definitely not what a lot of people think, is just about taking expense out. If you do that you're missing the boat. Uh, I think the other thing that's quite important is new is not necessarily better than old. A lot of people seem to think that the newer products are always better, not true. There are many instances. Guarantees. Guarantees in the past might be better. Some of the charges uh, might be fixed in RAND terms and so uh, charges might be low. There, there, are lots of, there are lots of instances where closed is actually better than you. So, but I, I think you need to look at each product or subset of product individually. You can't just apply the same formula to everything. But there are some common principles. So there's some common levers that you can look at which uh, help you to, to look holistically. And the first one is IP. I mean, the guys have spoken about it. You lose the knowledge about product, system, servicing, you're stuck. You can do nothing. So that's the second one is around what you can do in terms of simplifying functions or services. Third one is what you can do about simplifying or rationalizing products or features of the product. Then there's the IT system which has been mentioned. Uh, then there, there's upside. I mean, these are customers with real value there. What is what are you doing in terms of retention or uh, keeping them as customers and cross-selling other other products to them to to complete their portfolio. And then there's a lot of risk management, especially with the regulatory side now.
4: Uh, From our side, we haven't migrated any books yet. Um, We haven't taken over many companies in the past, so we don't have many legacy books lying around. We really have one big legacy book and one big current book. Uh, But in the past, some of our departments have tried... um, doing smaller things like putting on an AB business where they combined uh, with profit portfolios we've transferred some business from from the old to the new platform um so we've and and changes to our current legacy book to make things simpler and easier and better for the clients and for us uh, we have the added um, advantage or disadvantage that we're an ex-mutual company, not old mutual, just an ex-mutual company. Um, so we uh, have demutualization rules, so we have a few extra hoops that we have to um, jump through before we can actually do anything to a closed book. We have to inform the FSB and get the input as well. Um, I think, uh, yeah, so that's what we've, what we've done so far.
0: Okay, great. Thanks for that summary. Before we go further, we'd like to take the opportunity now for you to interpret what this means for you. So I know not all of us work directly with closed books, but given the maturity of the industry, it probably affects your work in some way. So just take out your notepad, I mean you've got paper and pens on your desk, and you'll have a minute to interpret what does closed books mean for your space. Even if it's just like Adrian said, maybe it's the next field that you want to start getting into because it's so exciting. That's where you want to take your career next, um, or maybe your valuations work, involve some closed products. So we'll take a minute now, I'll time you, and go. And stop. So, next phase is to think about what are your expectations for the rest of the session, what would you like to leave with? Take another 45 seconds. And go and stop. So, what we thought you'd you'd get from today's session is an overview of the technical and practical challenges of managing closed books and how different um, companies are approaching it, but it is a very big topic. We I mean, literally just only going to have time to scratch the surface, but now you know who you can go to for, for more information and you'll have some ideas about possible approaches that you can then explore. Um, we might delve into some specific interventions like migration and splitting up the entities, but is there anything else you would like to add to those expectations? Anything else you expect from us? You can just uh, Nick has got a mic so just raise your hand if you'd like to add anything. Okay, last chance. <laughs> oh, okay,
2: yeah. Hi, so I'm um, over from the UK where closed books are a big topic at the moment and, and gaining momentum. Really wanted to understand whether in South Africa the challenges around Business, or is it around IT for managing uh,
4: either closed books or closed blocks of business and whether migrations are common?
0: So, you'd like to understand what's the driving force? Is it more an IT challenge or a business challenge? Yes, please. Okay, cover that. Thank you. Yes, in the back there.
4: I'm hoping to find out from the custodians of the current closed books what. The custodians of the open books, which will be tomorrow's closed books, should learn from the past.
0: Okay. So, what lessons we can learn from the managing the current closed books to avoid those challenges? Yes. Good. Good question. Anything else? Oh, one more.
3: Hi there. Um, uh, nobody's yet mentioned anything about uh, discretionary benefits with profits. Um, uh, so, uh, an observation is that um, quite often closed with profit funds end up having quite high bonus stabilization reserves. Um, what has been the panelists' experience in how to manage that?
0: So the approach to managing uh, with profit funds, right? Okay, so um, we'll try to manage the detail, right? Yep. Okay, um, so we're going to, I mean you've, you've touched a bit on migration and that's quite a big intervention for companies. So can you share your experience around migration? Is it worthwhile or does it just
1: cause more problems? So I think firstly from MMI's perspective, we sort of Spoke about it. that it is definitely one of the uh, interventions that we follow, and actually, you know, has have, have built up a quite a big strategy regarding migrations, especially given our sort of history of, of acquisitions and mergers over time. Usually, acquisition or merger goes together with uh, a migration of systems to sort of align the business um, between the, the two entities. Um, from our side, very successful strategy well otherwise we wouldn 't have done it all of the time, and we definitely see the benefits on our side and in terms of the, the question regarding sort of a system versus a business impact you know it's it 's for us a, a bit of both in a sense that probably system side is the biggest um, Driver for it because you want to consolidate your systems in terms of your managing your expenses and IT sort of costs. However, also from the business side, having everything in one place, having one process for your, for instance, call centres or claims people and all your sort of operational areas to use, it just makes things easier in terms of from a business perspective. So, definitely so think in terms of your, your benefit that you get from it is, uh, from both areas. Um,
2: So so I agree with that. I mean, just to add to that, uh, I think one of the things you've got to do is is not treat it as an IT or an actual project only. So I think you've got to think about, well, you know, gee, let's not migrate complexity because then all we've done is just move complexity somewhere else into a more modern system. So I think what you're going to do is actually have a value add, not just in terms of you think you might reduce costs, and you know obviously standardizing and simplifying processes is good, but what is it in, for, for the customer? Is the customer going to get a better experience out of it? Are your employees going to get a better experience? Does it simplify training? Um, you know, does it actually make it easier to respond to changes um, in, in the market, either regulatory or? sort of trends in technology or ways that customers want to be serviced, You know, are, are the customers leaving behind in terms of their new expectations and, and what would be a, a good experience for them because as actors we tend to think of things as, as products and, and, and product features, but clients actually look at it as an end-to-end experience of which the product is just one part of that experience. So for me, if you're going to spend a lot of money on migrations, uh, you must try and weave into that some other value add along the way as well.
3: Uh, my, my starting point would be beware, there's a huge tendency to underestimate the complexity time and cost of a migration. Um, having said that I think that migration encompasses different things, there are different forms of migration and you need to understand what you're talking about. So one, one form of migration is effectively a platform migration or an IT. So you are recreating the same product on a different platform so you're doing that from an IT perspective, not because you want to change the product. So that's one element. And it going with that is the complexity of you need to have all the documentation, the IP, the product knowledge, the everything else to be able to recreate it. The second form is almost more of a you leave the one product behind and make a forced compulsory move of customers to a new product on a different system. That comes with a lot of complexity because you then have to make sure customers are better off if you're going to force them to go. So there's a lot of challenge in that. And then the third one, and there are more, is more of a voluntary migration. So you offer customers the move, but any of them come with a lot of complexity. And uh, people love to talk about migration. Those who have done them are less keen to go through them again. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Uh,
4: Luckily, we are behind the curve on this.
0: Uh,
4: But there has been some smaller conversions in our company, and uh, they are always slower and costlier than you can possibly imagine. So I think it is quite normal that it is difficult. Uh, Perhaps if I can answer that third question on what you do with your high BSRs. that is one of the things that we obviously worry about, um, and what there's, there's really two things we 've done so far there were some EB with profit uh, funds that we brought together so you have to make sure that when you combine them that they have the same kind of funding level otherwise you are doing in one or the other of the, of the groups so that is to to try to get a big enough group uh, funds together so that you could at least do it properly um, and also in the recent when the market actually did well, we try to declare a bit more bonuses to try to keep the fund, the BSR under control so it doesn't run away with you and run away with the book altogether. And then you have to start thinking about how do you de-risk the book and how much of that can you actually give through to the policyholders? Is it fair? Isn't it fair? Uh, you have to be fair to the policyholders and the shareholders obviously you don't want to lose either. And, and into the future, how can you, for example, uh, manage your reversionary bonus and your normal stable bonus together. So there's thinking that's going on in the company. I don't think we have all the answers yet, but that's one of the things that we think about when we look at how what to do with a closed book.
2: Maybe just to add to that, I mean I think if you look at the value proposition mm-hmm. um, that the customer bought when he bought that product, I suppose the big challenge is are you still de- delivering mm-hmm. that? You know, as these, as the pool gets smaller, as, you, as your BSRs go up, I um, suppose you've got to start asking a question, yourself a question whether you're still actually delivering what that product was sold for, and you know, can you allow it just to, to keep going as it is. And I think that's the challenge. I mean, it's one of the things why you actually just can't leave closed books there. Some of these things actually require active management, um, so so sometimes it may mean that you've got to re-engage um, with, with your customers and say, well, actually this thing that that you bought is no longer deliverable Um, and you know maybe we can get you to to rethink and maybe we can offer you something else.
0: Mm -hmm. So So, um, if I can just summarize, there's many different types of migrations but beware of underestimating the cost and complexity of them. Sometimes you are driven to it by escalating costs or changing expectations and having this need to deliver on on customer expectations in a sustainable way and when you do it right not migrating the complexity over it can actually pay off and become part of your long-term business um, strategy so something that's happening the
3: can I just yeah? add one bit there. Yeah. be careful of vendors <laughs> vendors will always tell you that it is easy to migrate and that they have tools that will allow you to do it without any complexity
0: yeah. <laughs> That's actually a very good point and I think it... <laughs> so while it's useful to look at the system side, a lot, of the, a lot of it is actually understanding the product and the real proposition that you've sold and maintaining that, um, which is of course where actuaries are, are very valuable. So something that's happened in the UK is that some closed books have been spun off and actually managed as separate entities. We haven't really seen that happening in South Africa, but. Uh, just your thoughts on that? Pros and cons.
1: Well, I think from our side, we in, in MMI level have sort of uh, product teams and implementation teams specifically focusing on on closed book, um, and there's sort of various reasons for that. First, in terms of uh, IP skills, you know, to to get a core team there that sort of can focus us on. Um, on the, the key elements that you needed to manage that specific book, and sort of, you know, we were talking about different levels there in terms of RB, et cetera. But um, it's also having that focus on on that book, you know, where sometimes we've sort of seen that if you have across a new business function and existing or closed book function, you, you might end up sort of. Uh, end up sort of more focusing on a new business side. So we've, we've split that into the division that also helps us apart from the product side and actual side, also from the IT side that we've, we've got guys that builds up IP in terms of migrations, in terms of our strategy to, to every now and again uh, seem to migrate something. So we sort of build up that uh, IP because, I mean, in terms of migration, the more IP you have, in terms of the complexities and issues, obviously it sort of at least becomes less little bit less complicated over time um, however we're saying that we also don't think of or haven't sort of considered too much possibly a separate entity uh, because of the fact that although your your systems and your product might be a, a separate division, there's still overarching um, processes and sort of what we've spoken about previously in terms of servicing your client where they still have a MMI, or whether that's now Momentum branded or Metropolitan branded, they still have still an have MMI product and still want to deal with MMI. You don't want these sort of different entities all over the place. So that's why we're sort of uh, at least still only looking at the divisional sort of split and not entity split.
2: Yeah, so I mean, you know, different companies take different approaches. So, I mean, so that's not been our approach. I think one of the things that, you know, the couple of things that, that <coughs> might, you know, sort of as a counter argument to maybe splitting, I mean, maybe not necessarily in a separate entity, but even separate divisions, is you, you've got to be careful of, of, of splitting your scale. Um, so, one of the things that insurance companies are going for them is so you've got a lot of scale in your operations. So, you do run the risk of, of, of Potentially giving some of that up. I mean it does certainly create focus, but if you're trying to invest in the future and actually develop your capabilities and what you can deliver to clients, there is certainly an element of possibly splitting your scale with that kind of approach. Um, I think the other thing is is that it's not like there's a lot of, you know, for most companies or for a lot of companies, their closed book clients actually a large proportion of the total client base. And it's not like um, you, you, there's that number of new clients you can go and capture in the market. I mean, it's, very, it's a fiercely competitive market, very difficult to capture in your business. So what you've got to do, you've got to um, get the most out of that loyalty and relationship that you have with your existing clients. And one of the ways that you do that is by offering those, those legacy clients the same type of experience... Um, that, a, that a, an open book um, client might get. So you do run the risk of, of bad experiences on the on the closed book, polluting um, their their views and, and their, just their perception of the company in terms of maybe whether they buy a new product from you or even keep that old one. And uh, you've got to be aware of churn as well because you know, intermediaries um, and advisors, it's always easy to sell suits so new and shiny um, and often you might overlook the value that's actually uh, in that old product.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: Uh, I mean if you look at the UK uh, at various stages they've sold off books of business closed books and so on now you only really want to do that if you prepare to lose those customers because they're customers that you no longer want it's not just the product it's the customer as such whereas for many of our closed books the customer also has open products so if you try and separate, if you try and treat them differently, you're going to run into problems. So, from a structural point of view, internally to have focus around expertise in managing them in certain whether it's product or IT makes sense. Talking to scale again, but in terms of completely separating your customers between closed and open, is not really possible in most instances.
4: Yeah, sounds all very sensible. I agree. Um, Different entities, I think, would give some legal and tax implications that I don't want to even think about. So I don't think i think that's the reason why we don't do it in South Africa for a start. Um, but you definitely need per, people that look at closed books separately from the others. You don't necessarily need a separate division. You definitely want to treat them the same as your other customers, but somebody has to look at these closed books. So we've specifically looked at... Uh, at, at these things, in, f- mostly from the actuarial department, with some help from others, luckily. Um, but, for example, special, making sure you're communicating with your closed book clients. For example, the universal life policies that crashed or in danger of crashing, that you actually communicate that to your, to your clients, that they're aware of what is happening. And we actually, especially for our reversioning bonus book, actually went through a process where we checked whether the policyholders that were paid up or paid single premiums actually are still alive because they actually should be, you should have paid out to their families a death benefit and it was actually interesting that there was quite a number that had died and we never heard about it mm. so at least try to get that money to 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 the people that that, that should actually receive it
3: mm. just i mean talking about the difference between the uk and here I, actually i had uh, a consultant in my office the other day who was Talking about how in the UK the typical experience was they managed to reduce costs by reducing the service level agreement so I said what do you mean he said well something that for an open book you perhaps might do in two days you could uh, maybe it's okay to do it in two weeks I said no that's that's not the way we work here and if you're looking to the customer experience that's not the way that you go looking for to cut expenses and so on. So it does depend on the mindset. You, if you start with a customer, you're not going to go that route.
1: Just one of the things that I can also, I think that the question at the back was in terms of almost of the lessons you can learn from the closed book into say an open book and um, while sort of talking about almost this uh, approach of, of companies in terms of how you do it, just from a, a MMR perspective and in terms of our view of having a different division, So, our biggest lesson where you can sort of learn for the open book is don't do migration uh, on the open book or with the open book team. And that's part of as well what we sort of, in terms of our side, in terms of IP, you know, you have those teams focusing on migration because when you do migration, that's what you focus on. And it's one of the biggest lessons is that, you know, (laughs) move that on, keep focus on the open book Mm -hmm. while someone else focuses on the migration.
0: Mm Okay, cool. So just to summarize that, I mean, you can certainly um, consider separate division, but actually what you want is to consider the client, not the product. So you're not trying to, it might be problematic trying to split the closed book because actually you might be splitting the client relationship, and that doesn't, doesn't work in the long run. So create the focus, capture the scale, but keep focused on the client and treat them the way you would treat an open book client. Leading into our next question, what is the most valuable lesson you can offer from your experience in managing closed books? Or not just for managing closed books, but also to avoid creating future legacy challenges? You already started.
2: Okay. So, so I would say uh, two things. The one is um, most people think of closed book as a liability. So I think the first thing is to change your mindset and actually manage it more like an asset. Uh, because I think you, you know, what you've got to recognise is the value in those client relationships, and remember that the fact that you even have customers on your closed book tells you that, on average, they're probably quite loyal. Um, and you know, you don't necessarily know what your new your customers and new uh, books are going to be like. So you know, that surely must be an asset. Because if you were a startup company and you didn't have any customers, that would be an extremely valuable asset to you that you suddenly would have. Uh, all these customers especially if you had a closed book insurer not looking after them i think the other thing is uh, is actually to always think about the client experience i think uh, you know certainly in sort of the way things are emerging i mean customers do expect to be taken more seriously they're not prepared to accept you know two-week turnarounds if, if that's what your plan is going to be um, and they do expect you to keep up so i think you've always got to think about the client experience uh, that that's being experienced, and whether you can deliver that consistently, and if not, maybe you need to be paying more attention to your to your closed book. Uh, and then maybe just a, a sort of an earlier question about what um, your product developers could actually learn from closed book. I mean, I'd like to suggest it should almost be compulsory training for your product developers to actually work in a closed book environment for a year or two. Um, so maybe you want to. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
3: I, I, I'd, I'd support that. I mean, it, it's a. So, it is a it's a sphere of business where you learn a lot about what works. In development, you, you've got a blank piece of paper. You go and develop something and hope somebody sells it. Here, you're dealing with real commitments and promises to customers, and you're having to make them work. And you learn what has and hasn't worked about products. So I think it's a fantastic place for people to learn. So that's one. I think the second one is be open-minded and think laterally this is this is about trying to find pragmatic ways of dealing with difficult problems um, third one is there's no silver bullet treat each case individually and uh, uh, look for options and the fourth one would be don't lose knowledge and skills before it's or before Don't lose them early because you will land up in a situation where you are stuck and you can't do anything.
4: I think the most valuable lesson is really that we've learned is that you have to treat your older customers as well as you treat your new customers. They've been with you all these years, make sure that you treat them properly.
0: Great, thanks. So now getting back to your role and your expectations, I'd like you to take another minute now to Or maybe two let's take two minutes to think about what you've heard so far what questions you're still sitting with and then we'll continue the discussion and go two minutes you can talk to each other as well so you don't have to sit and think in silence (laughs) and stop okay so that leads nicely into question time we've got our roving mics and you've had a chance to cook up your questions Hi. Um, you mentioned earlier that you can get to a point where the um, products are no longer sustainable or serviceable, deliverable, um, and then you tell your client it's not going to work. Can we interest you in something else? If I was a client, in principle, I'd say no. So how do
3: you like? How do you deal with a client when they say no? What do you do? Do you keep it as a section and just you know try and get rid of all the other clients that do say yes, or?
1: So I think from our side, where we um, sort of have uh, a conversion or migration, we will always put the client in a better position if we force the, the conversion. However, there is options where the client can choose to, to uh, go from one product to another. However, you might go from a universal, for instance, to, to a peer investment. On those, there is those scenarios where all your benefits won't move over and that's where you as a client need to make the choice. In other words, that is a, a client push or advisor push scenario versus a, a company push. and That's where so we have the distinction between a client initiated conversion or system migration. Mm-hmm. I think my
2: answer to that would be, I mean you, know, if you if you sit and sort of think about all the objections you can get, often it kind of means that you're going to do nothing about it. So my, my advice is actually to go with something I mean along, exactly along the lines of pizza saying, is actually just make sure the clients know worse off, inevitably you're going to get people that are going to object, and but I would say deal with those on a case by case basis. Uh, if you're anything like our company, you've always got a lot of other products back in the back room that you can offer them as well if, if they want if there's certain elements of the proposition that are more important to them, but I, I think uh, you know what you'll find with closed book, you typically don't know all the answers when you start. Um, so what I would say is just proceed um, and and deal with those on exception basis. you'll find that it's actually sometimes more of an academic question than practicality. I think clients you know as I say it's not always just about the products it's about the whole package. Um, so, so, I would
3: say move anyway, um, but there are all those exceptions. <coughs> yeah. Does that the only answer? thing I'll add to that is often uh, the communication is important. Mm-hmm. So in those instances, talking to the client will often make big difference.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. And that's uh, actually one of the central themes of that FCA paper <laughs> around fair treatment of your customers that hold closed products, communication. Does that answer your question? Next question, David.
5: Um, so, I mean, particularly in the case of compulsory moves, and I mean, it's been said a couple of times this afternoon, we need to make sure the customer's always better off. Um, and I guess I'm the kind of guy people look to to provide assurance that that is the case. Um, I mean, so what what sorts of tests um, do companies apply? Um, I mean, presumably some kind of aggregate overall Total PV of benefits isn't isn't good enough. I mean, you could do that at an, an individual um, customer level. And you can get really extreme and try and test that under every circumstance. Um, the, the the benefit that the customer is receiving is is better in in, in monetary terms. Um, so so I'd, I'd be interested to hear how, how people are thinking about that. And then maybe to broaden the question, I mean, the reality is that a customer value proposition is about more than the benefits and um, the rands and cents that you actually pay. Um, there's there's customer service interface. There's choice of portfolio. There's I mean all sorts of of, of uh, extra components to it, which are typically very difficult to actually put rands and sense values on. And by definition, customers typically mean they do that for themselves in every every purchase decision. So how how uh, are, are companies across the market actually thinking about weighing up this conundrum? And I guess it's a critical question because. Because if you're trying to drive complexity reduction, you're explicitly trying not to replicate everything that you've given the customer at the moment. Um, so I'd be interested in, in, in hearing about the approaches.
1: So I think on our side, on I mean, the first part of that is we normally do product for product. And so in other words, it's more sort of a system uh, specified migration. We do, however, for instance, where you might move uh, from one product to another, where it's very similar but not 100% exactly the same. I mean, at claims stage, for instance, our claims teams actually go to the original contract of the person, make sure that it's sort of covered or not covered in those conditions before they they decline or pay the claim for, for instance. So even in those cases, you know, if if your system might not 100% cater for everything, we still try and. and uh, make sure that, at a benefit level, when you do eventually come and claim that you get exactly what what you had, so there, we, we always sort of in other words, either from a system side product to product or even in terms of our processes, we, we monitor to monitor that
3: yeah david your your challenges are spot on, which is one of the one of the reasons why I spoke about the complexity to, to really get if you if you 've got products for instance, that have got guarantees that you won't get now, or charging structures that are back-end loaded versus front-end loaded, to really put a customer in a position where they are better off in all instances is going to be an extremely expensive exercise. So you have to, to, to really hit that mark. Uh, you need to uh, do a lot of work. And, and I think it's on all levels. It's not just benefits at maturity. It would be early early termination, it would be all the benefits along, along the way, which is why it's one of the things we avoid where possible. We try and deal with it in other ways. You reach a stage, perhaps where the portfolio is small enough or the set of products are small enough, where you're forced to do something along those lines, but where you've got a big book of business, it's very difficult to do that. So I'm, th- I'm talking more recurring premium type business. I think single premium type products, generally it's easier to... To hit that solution, to be able to do a uh, forced migration.
4: Yeah, I think from our side that is probably why we're still hanging back. Um, we know it's going to be necessary to migrate, but it's going to be a lot easier to migrate a small book than a, than a large book. Mm-hmm. Absolutely.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> Next question. Got time for maybe one more question? <laughs> <laughs> um, I
5: mean, so in in, in, in the case of um, voluntary migrations, I guess the problem you've got is that I mean, you're going to go to all this effort, put this off out to a customer, and they might say, well, no, I'm, I'm happy where I, where I am. Um, uh, Behavioural finance plays a big role, and particularly the positioning of what is the default. Um, so, uh, I mean, I'd be interested to hear how successful voluntary moves have been, what sort of take-up rates do you have? Um, and how's that been achieved? Has it been, well, we're thinking we're going to move you, um, and that's the default. And if you want to opt out, tick this box um, or call us. Um, so, so what sort of take-up rates and, and uh, how did you get
3: there? I'll talk to one. I mean, we've done voluntary migration, but not on a default basis, literally as an option. So where you go out to certain customers, eight customers, Uh, For instance, and say you're in an older product, there's an option to move to a a newer generation product with a larger range of uh, funds available, but these are the three things that you need to consider. There are three three items. There's a guarantee. There's a this, there's a that. uh, Be aware. Those are choices you've got to make because they're not going to be available on the other side. So there's been no push, no default. It's literally an option and the take-up has been better than I expected. I mean, we've run too many thousands of, of those where people have probably intermediary-driven uh, as opposed to customer-driven, but there have been the volumes have been relatively large.
4: We've had voluntary uh, uh, conversions for as long as I can remember, but not with the intent of uh, getting rid of a closed book, but just giving customers the option to change if they want to. So there's been no push as such from our side, it's always just been available and there's quite a lot that happens.
0: Okay, great. So maybe as closing comments, how do you see this developing in the future?
1: Well, I think for instance from our side, we we always, when we sort of started talking, there's the different levels that you need to consider. I mean, and we've, we've spoken a lot about client considerations, but also the company and shareholder considerations. Each one sort of has its own uh, things to sort of look out for and, and manage. For instance, on a client level, managing clients' expectations going forward is just becoming more and more important um, as we sort of go along with, with changing uh, environment. On a company level, I mean, we've spoken about, for instance, key skills and, and the, the IP of people in, in these products. You know, most of the people that I know that work on the RB uh, products are sort of cl- coming and close and closer to retirement. You know, so it's just sort of those kind of issues mm-hmm. that just gets worse over time. And then at the shareholder level, as time goes on, it's just more and more the issue of looking at your book and making sure that you know your sort of expenses don't don't run away with your actual book
2: yeah I mean personally I think that uh, there's going to be more focus in it going forward because I think you know when you for example in an economic down cycle I mean it's the time that people will attack your will attack your books um, seeking new business from from you. So if you're going to be retaining your business, I think you do need to be focusing um, on, on seeing those clients as, as clients that you want to retain. So I think that's the one thing. I think the other thing, though, is if you come to these, you know, these actuarial sessions, uh, in fact, we're going to have a session immediately after this where we talk about big data and customer analytics and all that sort of thing. If you have any hope of, of, of applying that kind of thinking to your closed book, you've actually really got to change the way that closed book gets managed in your business. Um, so you need to be thinking about can you get hold of the data, can you efficiently actually track what the customers are, are doing with those products and tend to do with those products. So if you're not actually paying attention to the closed book and moving it into a space where you can actually mm-hmm. apply these techniques, you're going to miss out on some of the new trends.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm
3: i mean i th- I think in the ideal world y- you would want to develop products where they can easily be upgraded to the latest version that's That's a nice concept in reality you're not going to get away from closing products along the way uh, and some of it might be nothing to do with your choice. It might be regulatory. You take the change in commission regulations that automatically draws a line in the sand and closes off a certain product set and moves on to the next. So you're not going to get away from closed products. The closed product sets that are there at the moment have got run off 50 years at least. Uh, So this is a space that is going to require focus for a long time to come. And as I've said before, I think there's a lot of opportunity for people to uh, apply their minds more.
4: From our side, I think it will become necessary to migrate closed books but it's obviously easier to migrate 20,000 policies than 500,000, so I think it's probably further into the future. Uh, but of course you'll have to look at specific products separately. Some product sets might be easier to migrate than others. Universal life probably more difficult, but if it's a f- pure savings, that's probably easier to do. So it does depend on your, on your specific products as well. Um, I think it is necessary that you have to perhaps sweeten the deal for the policyholders, make sure they get a good deal out of it, but of course the shareholders Uh, can't stand in for all of the problems. So if you can save expenses and you can give some of that joy to the policyholders and some to the shareholders, then everybody's happy.
0: Great. Thank you very much. Please join me in thanking our panel. And the next session is on the Saab.